on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. For us, ritual is almost everything that we do in this work because ritual brings, brings me and what I've observed brings you know, everyone in the containers that we hold or the spaces that we hold into their body. And this work, this healing happens in the body. It doesn't happen in the mind. And, and I've seen so many times, like, you know, we're trying to unpack um, patriarchy by just having conversations around it. And so much of the trauma, so much of like the, the harm that we've inherited lives in the body. And so if we don't adjust it through the body, then, then, then we're missing something. Is it? That's, that's my understanding. And so for me, ritual is, is so central and key to, to, to these spaces and to this healing process. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guests today are Ophir and Dor Habirer, Jerusalem-born identical twins who are, among many things, facilitators, ritualists, storytellers, chefs, and organizational consultants. The brothers bring together their connection to ancestral Arabic Jewish roots with their love for ecology, healing, and village building. They have been guiding men's work for over four years and have just launched their new organization and online platform called Kinhood. In our conversation today, Dora and Ophir share what it was like to grow up on an Israeli kibbutz and the culture shock they experienced when moving to the United States. They speak of their journey into men's work and the power of a container to be vulnerable. They share some of the guiding stories and myths of Judaism and the gift of connecting to one's ancestral roots. And finally, Ophir shares two of his original poems to end our time together. Before we begin, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter for this podcast. And don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Dor and Ophir. Welcome, Ophir and Dor, to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Ian. I'd love to start with asking both of you, uh, actually to the listener, that uh, both of you are actually in different locations on this planet. But I'd love to ask uh, each of you to just share a little bit of where you are, both you know, geographically, emotionally, spiritually, just to, uh, to place the listener in, in where you're at. Sweet. Well, I can begin. It's Dor, and I'm uh, currently in Port Townsend, Washington. I live on Merrowstone Island and in a treehouse, and the power went out in the middle of the night, so I was kind of scurrying around, figuring out what I'm going to do for this interview, and I ended up calling this co-working space in, in town, in Port Townsend, and uh, they had a meeting room available, so it was perfect, and got to spend a little time by the ocean. It's a sunny day here, and really enjoying the sun after a few days of rain, and trying to find a way to, to make this happen. So I'm glad mm. it's happening and I'm here settled. So 
Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Ophir here. And I am geographically, physically located in uh, Grass Valley, California, on Sierra Foothills, Nisanan land. And spiritually, it's been, it's been quite a week. And um, I'm just feeling the fullness of it. And also feeling the gratitude for the time, the more spaciousness in winter to, to be with it. So, Thank you. Yeah, welcome to you both. It's uh, maybe important for the listener to hear that uh, I am speaking to two brothers, two twins, I understand. <laughs> and uh, this is a first for the Mythic Masculine podcast. And um, I'm excited that this was the, the invitation for uh, this conversation, which I'm really intrigued by because I think it, it might be one of the first times, at least that we've more directly explored the Mythic Masculine lens through uh, Judaism. And that cosmology of which, you know, I know some peripherally, you know, through friends that also have engaged in some of this work, such as John Wollstone as well. He was interviewed in uh, episode three, who we also share as a, as a mutual friend, <laughs> mutual brother. And, and yeah, when you reached out again, I was excited to be able to speak on this because I also think it's, um, yeah, it's a largely unexplored terrain for myself and maybe for, for a number of the listeners. And, um, you know, I, I suspect we're going to go to lots of interesting places today. And first, maybe, you know, it's like where to begin is always the question. And perhaps beginning near the beginning is, uh, I understand you both grew up on a kibbutz in Israel. And yeah. perhaps we could we could begin there, what that was like and how that informed, you know, who the, the men you'd become. Mm. Yeah, we, uh, we were born in uh, Jerusalem and grew up on a kibbutz nearby, about 20 minutes away. And uh, it's actually in... And the hills is buried uh, Samson, and it was it's an agricultural kibbutz. We had cows, and there was grapes, and and a winery, and a furniture shop, and a bunch of different fruit tree productions, and and so it was a really beautiful beautiful childhood. Everyone, it was six hundred and fifty people. We all ate together in a dining in dining room. So. And everyone knew each other, and so yeah, it was it was a really special childhood to grow up in. Yeah, I would add that. Oh, fear! By the way, <laughs> I would add that the there's a sense of village that we were exposed to from the beginning. Like the the, the children would all you know just roam around together, and all the adults in the in the in the community were kind of responsible to the children and and there's a lot of also freedom and just being able to be safe and be with a lot of with, with a lot of your peers and i think that sense of village and support and understanding of community and that like actually the the thriving of the community is is determined on like on each individual and it's yeah i think that really was deeply embedded from the beginning yeah and when we were five we moved to the states so mm we left behind this this beautiful village that we were part of and our grandparents were there and we had an uncle and aunt that was there as well. And we moved to St. Louis, Missouri because my dad, our dad works for a software company and so they transferred him. We had a choice between moving to St. Louis or Melbourne, but my mom thought that Melbourne was too far away from, from Israel. So we ended up moving to St. Louis, Missouri and that was just a total, yeah, totally yeah. different. 
What was that culture shock like? You know, we were younger. And so some of, you know, there's definitely little memories of just not being, you know, not having the, the ability to roam around with your peers freely. And wherever you go, it's not like you know everyone or everyone knows you. Um, so it's a different experience of, of how you're being seen. And we also moved to a neighborhood that was a lot of Israeli families. It's like where all the Israeli families moved to. So there's like a sort of second kibbutz feeling, even though, you know, that wasn't true in, in the school that we went to. But in the neighborhood itself, we, we still had a little bit of that mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. How did those early experiences in the kibbutz inform your understandings of, of masculinity or what it was to to be a man, even at those early years? Um, yeah, that's a great question and something I haven't put much thought into, even doing you know, men's work and how, how those years at the kibbutz informed us, really. And I think you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing you know, as well as is creating a, a safe space and like for for people to feel part of a of a village or to feel part, held in in community, and so you know, really getting to experience that in a young age and really seeing seeing what it's like to have mutual aid as a way of life kind of informed just w- what's the possibility of expressing ourselves and you know, and especially in this individualistic more capitalistic culture. So just having that lens has informed us, at least in, in our humanity, which also deeply influences our masculinity. Yeah, I think I would, I would echo on the, the most informed part of, of masculinity or how the kibbutz informed our, our idea of masculinity is the kibbutz is all about community support and like the community working together. There is no such thing as like, you have to be self-sufficient on your own. It's in the, the thought of the group and the collective. And, and I think a lot of the healing for masculinity is around like understanding that, 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 that we are working together, that it's actually, there's a lot of permission to ask for help. And so I think that like that being ingrained in us from an early age is something that we bring. What has been your relationship to your religion or your cultural you know, ritual and practices, which seems very alive at something like a kibbutz in Israel. You know, I imagine that it was very much, you know, a part of the day-to-day and the rhythms of the community. And therefore, was that something that you you kept kept with you, you know, as you grew up? Or is it something, like I hear of others who particularly maybe haven't had as much of that direct uh, experience and, and contact with their, say, Jewish heritage, need to find it later and come to it then. And again, I wonder, was it always with you? Did you lose it? Sort of return to it? Yeah. So, so actually the kibbutz itself was secular and wow. that side of our family, you know, there's, we did in the kibbutz, we observed different Jewish holidays, but in a very like secular way, there's a Jewish holiday of Shavuot and everyone would dress in white and there'd be like a, a party and everyone would quick uh, make cheesecakes and it'd be like a cheesecake competition. And, all the new babies of the kibbutz would be introduced. Right, right, they would like people would write, um, hold them up, kind of like the Lion King, and <laughs> it was like really beautiful and festive. And you know, we had Shabbat dinner sometimes in the. I think every Friday actually at in the dining hall. But the overall feeling was was secular. And our grandparents that lived in the kibbutz were very secular. And but we we also my mom's side of the family they're Moroccan and they're Orthodox Jewish. So 
we really got that raised with with Judaism and because of our mom and and a lot more traditions and Moroccans have really rich traditions and so we were able to yeah to 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 get that from from my mom's side which has really informed both of our our lives until now yeah I, I would agree that we did have a strong sense of tradition in the household because of our mom and we did at some point like like feel disenchanted from it and lose it and then had to find spirituality and other practices and then have to come back and realize that actually so much of what we're searching outward is actually within our, our traditions and we and we just haven't yet been oriented to those parts. This is a really interesting theme as well because I do feel, you know, when I look out at men's work as it's practiced largely here in the West, that often it is, it's really missing a, a, a kind of cultural root right, that that sort of can feel cobbled together from a lot of different practices, you know, some indigenous, some vague Celtic here, you know, and and what I see, I think, in some of the research of your work is that you're able to anchor it actually in a real, you know, rich, living cultural heritage, and, and how, in some ways, necessary that is, actually, to, to really have a, a rooted, even approach to masculinity. And so, you know, I, yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead yet, but I do, I do want to ask, you know, what, what was it in your own journeys then that led you to, you know, come to this prism of men's work, which, you know, is probably a lengthy saga, but maybe you could share, yeah, what were the touch points along the way? Uh, I just want to name before even answering that question that, you know, people think about, our, you know, our retreats when, we, when we do, or our spaces when we do offer that Jewish element. It's not, you know, it's not just for Jews. It's just, that's, that's our traditions. That's, that's our lens. That's our lens for ritual. That's our heritage for ritual. And so that's what we have to offer, but it's, it's for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the way that we kind of stepped into, into, into men's work was actually, you know, we each had our own experience doing different being in different types of containers, you know, both had experience with the Mankind Project and mm. different organizations that do men's work. And because we we also, we're, we're twins and we have that kind of deep bond, then we're always seeking for that with other men as well. And we have two older brothers that we're close to. And mm. so just kind of like the brotherhood has been a really important part of our life. And mm is something that we always yearn for. And so part of trying to like start our own containers was really we're like we wanting deepening brother like brotherhood with others. And we weren't feeling like, you know, we were feeling that we needed a container to help to help create that. So that was that was part of it. And and also something that's like you were saying, Ian, is that, you know, we're going to like the mankind project and stuff where they use like you know, terms like a hoe and stuff that didn't feel like was appropriate for, for our lens and our context. And and so we wanted something more like something that will feel feel more belonging in. And mm-hmm. and so that's that's kind of how, how it started for us to put together the first retreat which we did a few years ago. And we were able to get a grant from a Jewish organization. So mm-hmm. that also informed of us having incorporating Jewish practice, which was great as a kind of baseline for the work that we were going to continue moving forward. For those listeners that perhaps have a, a maybe a cursory understanding of Judaism, you know, as a whole, or like where it fits in this relationship to other Abrahamic, you know, religions, 
I'd love if you could just give a sketch, you know, like a little bit of a history lesson and a sort of um, general sense of, yeah, like, you know, what what is the uniqueness that is Judaism? I have some idea, but, you know, again, I'd love for the listeners to have a sort of a foundational understanding uh, of, of its origins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Judaism is, you know, like the oldest Abrahamic religion. Um, and, you know, Christianity, you know, stems from Jesus was a, you know, a Jew living in, in Canaan at the time. And so, yeah, in that, in that sense, Judaism is, you know, it's hard to say when it started, but it's, 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 you know, thousands of years old, you know, and, and so there's a long lineage of traditions within Judaism and long and many different evolutions of, of the way it's practiced as well. Um, But also a consistency from, from thousands of years ago. Yeah, and I think also Judaism has both, you know, originally in its in its original form was more paganistic, was more ritualistic, and a lot of the holidays still stem from that. So there's so much earth based rootedness within Judaism and in in our traditions and in the holidays and in the calendar. I mean, the calendar is also based on the moon and the sun and the stars. And so there's, it's, and has shifted over time with, because of, of Christianity and the crusades and, and the, you know, witch trials and all the ways that like doing more embodied and, and wild forms of Judaism were, could be punished by death. And so it became more contained and it became into synagogues and closed buildings. And, and so for us over the last many years, we've we're trying to connect to that more ancient earth-based wild Judaism that feels more right to us. And a lot of the a lot of what we refer to, you know, as, as a Jewish practice, a lot of it refers to the time of the temple. Uh, there's two temples in, in Jerusalem and where 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 there was an intact Jewish culture and it wasn't a space and it was centralized and there was a centralized worshiping space that a lot of the like earth-based elements could could be brought into. You know, it's interesting then the question that comes to me is, I mean, it relates to this historical mythic understanding of patriarchy because, you know, I understand, uh, I, I was reading an article about the the rewilding Judaism, I believe is the t- name of mm-hmm. the frame. Yeah, and uh, at the retreat, and a question you had asked the men was, what is patriarchy? You know, and, and, and to unearth it and to say, you know, how does it live in my experience and my lens and my body? And, uh, you know, I asked that question to you because I will give a little context on this podcast even. It's obviously, you know, given the mythic masculine frame that we approach this a lot. You know, we, we, I ask my guests to, and oftentimes when they use the term, I actually ask them to define what they mean by that because it's helpful to understand not everybody has a, a shared understanding of what patriarchy actually means, you know, because it could be everything from a, a system of rule by men, you know, or it could be the mythic understanding of the rule of the father, Right, or it could be like Rian Eisler, who wrote uh, the Chalice and the Blade. You might be familiar with it or not, but she, yeah, she really unpacks it as actually it's uh, a dominator culture is actually the deeper, you know, not so much patriarchy as in men in power. So it's just interesting, you know. I'd love for you to define for the listener, not too much down that rabbit hole, but just enough that we can then understand whereby what happened to Judaism through this advent or or encounter with patriarchy or or its equivalent. So, patriarchy, yeah, I think in some ways we, 
the way I see patriarchy is everything that you mentioned, you know, is the, the dominator culture is also the, the system where men inherited property and also men are in power. Men have religious power I mean, in terms of leading services, in terms of a religious authority and even even the the opportunity to inhabit religi- certain religious spaces. And, and that is very true within Judaism. Like Judaism has also a long lineage of, of men in power, men, men really occupying those, those, those authority places, men create, creating the laws, the religious laws, which also are the, the everyday laws. And, and so, so part of doing that work through a Jewish lens is also reckoning with actually all those patriarchal influences and also recognizing some of the previous, more, as Dora was saying, more wild, more paganistic, more free, less suppressed, aspects of it and thinking about yeah what 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 caused the shift mm-hmm. yeah you know i would i would just add also that ethnically like you're you you're jewish because of your mother so in some ways judaism is also matriarchal because we, we receive the the religion the tradition being part of the the tribe you know judaism is not just a religion it's it's an ethnicity and so so that c- comes from the from the mother and yeah, I think f- I just see the how it's hard to know because we don't really know history. We only know history from who writes it. So we we have that lens. And I, I really believe that before the witch trials and before the crusades, when there was more kind of tribal tribal ways, even Judaism, which is a monotheistic religion, you know, was still practiced in, in a more like earth-based and, and tribal-based systems you know there's a 12 tribes of israel and so then women i believe had in other you know had a bigger role and and say in the culture and especially and also there's another factor factor of oral tradition and when it became written and who was the one that wrote down the traditions so i think that that also has a big part to do with it and i would love to also mention that Judaism has concepts within it that, to me, feel almost antagonistic to, to patriarchy, to, mm. to, to control, to, to ownership. You know, there's like every seventh year, there's, there's you lay the land, lay fallow, and you, you, you open up the land for, for, for the communal harvest. And every seventh day, you can't, you, you're instructed not to work, to produce, and to alter the earth. You're, in, you're instructed to lay your, let your body lay fallow. You know, just like you're letting the land lay fallow every seventh year. And then every 50 years, there's a jubilee of like complete land redistribution. And so there's concepts that, to me within Judaism that, that feel to me not in the lines of like a dominator culture. And so would you say that that was an encounter with like a, a patriarchal force that in, way, in a way kind of reconfigured Judaism at a certain point in history? So that's my curiosity because I understand also like say with the – I think it was the Celtic tribes or prior that, or the Neolithic, right? That there was uh, these kinds of dominator cultures that came from the north, uh, at least according to you know some of the histories that then began to you know dominate or to to circumvent um, to to take over the matriarchal cultures, and then in that sense, you know, all the way down to I think you know Crete was a very partnership based culture at one time, and then sort of was one of the last to fall. So I'm I'm curious again, was that similar or around the same time or much later? than what have been those sort of earth, more earth-based Judaism tribes? Yeah, I guess, yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't know if I have like a precise answer to that. 
to be honest. I think that one one factor I, I I think about is like I think about also like so much of the Jewish um, history that we we refer to is you know following is like during the Exodus from Egypt and following it, mm-hmm. and so also thinking about like what of the culture of Egypt at the time, which obviously were there was. You know, we we were enslaved within Egypt, and and so there's already there's a power system, and and what of the trauma there, and like the 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 culture there was inherited into the into the way Jewish culture was practiced. Mm-hmm. George, anything to add? Yeah, I think that also there's an uncertainty there of what when that actually happened, and you know, because of the 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 history and being slaves in Egypt and we don't even know if that's a real story or a metaphor that that's mm. that's been passed down to us of just of of an idea of, of liberation and, and enslavement and and so there's there's so much we just don't know but I really like I said previously I think a big like the, the Crusades especially was was a time where a lot shifted and in the way that Judaism was practiced and I think it became a lot more because it was influenced by war and because of massacre. And so it shifted to, to more patriarchal because that's the way to survive. And so, yeah. And yeah, I, I think I may have referenced it before when, when we were displaced from the temple, when the temple was destroyed, you know, the temple was our connection to like the land there. And like there's offerings from agriculture offerings that would be brought to the temple of that land. And so we'd, we did, like there wasn't belonging to a specific land in relation with that, that land and a central worshiping place of that land. Then I think the connection to, to, to land got lost. And I think part of in the tending of the land. And, and so I think that's one influence as well. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I'm curious to learn about the maybe pre-patriarchal mythologies that have informed then or continue to inform maybe your understanding too of of you know what is masculinity like what is is it is it prescriptive in any way or is it you know sort of quixotic in the way that stories are but it seems like you know that, that the mythologies also correspond with very particular rituals very particular practices and so I'd be curious to know yeah in your journey of uncovering you know these pre-patriarchal ways you know how has that begun to inform yeah your own understanding of you know men or masculinity and the the influence on how you bring this work to others yeah thanks for for that question Ian. and you know for me it's it's also looking at a lot of the biblical figures you know looking at mm-hmm. abraham looking at isaac looking at jacob looking at moses and all these figures that we've read about growing up and what kind of traits and characteristics do they do they embody and a lot of them were shepherds first of all and so shepherds was spent a lot of time alone in in the wilderness were able to had a lot of time to reflect and walk barefoot on the earth and also there's a lot of themes around radical hospitality and just really opening up your tent you know especially with abraham is how to be a place where people can just come through and anyone is welcome and so so just embodying that of like inclusivity, embodying that welcomeness, embodying that way to 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 welcome anyone and to befriend anyone and support anyone regardless of of where they come from and and who how they identify. And so that's a big part for me that I've I've picked up from from studying that as well. Yeah, I would 
I would say it's pretty difficult for me to know like exactly what what of the preways because so much of what I know is is what's what's been told and passed down and so much of what was before and 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 why like and and wild and maybe more feminine in Judaism wasn't passed down you know it was it was mm. there's it was lost in, in some ways but there are concepts like I said that 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 point to it and so yeah I think part of that is just unearthing those concepts and also just seeing like in the traditions that were passed down like like Shabbat and 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 so many other practices and so many holidays where that actually exists yeah and I think there's also different ways rituals that once we step into them once we practice them then we can connect to a different form that we might not have been passed down. You know, Ophir and I are both part of this organization called Wilderness Torah in California that also John Wolfstone and Day, that was in a previous podcast, are part of. And, and there we, you know, we've done rituals together as a village of 300 people. And one of them is uh, oh, calling for the rains during the harvest harvest festival. And just embodying these different, more ritualistic aspects of Judaism can start bringing back different layers of understanding of, of what is like what is possible in, in Judaism. And so also a lot of the work that Ophir and I do is around embodiment because, mm. you know, we can read about it, but how do we actually bring it into our bodies so that we can discover new things? I just want to take that, Dor. Um you know, I've heard a little bit about that as well, that that ritual of like calling for the rain. And I just want to pause a moment too and and maybe hear a little bit about what is it in the power of ritual or or the imbuing a sense of, you know, related relationship, you know, that that again, to a maybe to a modern mind or a sort of a demythologized mind, they might think, Oh, that you know, that's something quaint or that's uh just sort of uh, you know, it's fun to do, but obviously it doesn't affect anything, you know, clearly to the sort of modern rational scientific mind. And yet, like, I'm curious how you would speak to that, you know, to the, to the, that kind of uh, skeptical, um, you know, outsider, let's say that, that maybe has written off all ritual and everything, you know, uh, what, what do you say to them? I think that's the thing about ritual is you can't understand it through just hearing about it. You can't understand it through words. It's that direct experience. And so I'm not going to try to convince someone, you know, like, that ritual is is important for them, but any opportunity I have, I'll welcome them into my ritual. And mm-hmm. almost every time, I really feel that 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 impact, that that like awakening of oh yeah, like I, I'm longing for that too. Whatever expression I just felt, that's something I've I've been seeking maybe, and I just haven't noticed. Yeah, I think you know a lot of times for the, for those skeptics, for people that are are skeptical of ritual, it's because a lot of times they haven't really experienced something that's 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 meaningful or that they feel included in. And so it's, you know, that's what I love about Shabbat, for example. It's just such a beautiful way that no matter where I'm at, no ma- you know, whoever's around me, I can bring into that ritual and it's going to be powerful for them. It's, 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 it's a container for them to pause and reflect and be with community and say gratitude. And, and so it doesn't even matter where, what your religious beliefs are or, or levels of, even trauma around your faith, it's, you know, it's, it's a ritual that, that, that can welcome anyone in. I can affirm actually having been invited to a number of Shabbats with, with John and, and with other friends in Judaism that absolutely it's been 
you know, deeply uh, warm to feel welcomed into something. And also a sense of, of like the power of, of some kind of ancient rhythm, right? That, that again, defies a kind of mm, rational explanation. And yet it's almost like the, the ritual itself provides the, the opportunity to, to pause or to reflect or to, you know, interrupt the flow of just constant doing right? That so permeates the dominant culture and certainly so permeates my own experience so much of the time. And so I really see the value of, of these kinds of like leaning on and commitment to ritual to, to like organize the, the weeks and the days and love to for you to speak on that. Yeah. Well, b- even before I speak about that, I think I want to mention that, that for us, ritual is almost everything that we do in this work. And because ritual brings brings me and what I've observed brings, you know, everyone in the containers that we hold or the spaces that we hold into their body. And this work, this healing happens in the body. It doesn't happen in the mind. And, and I've seen so many times, like, you know, we're trying to unpack um, patriarchy by just having conversations around it. And so much of the trauma, so much of like the, the harm that we've inherited lives in the body. And so if we don't adjust it through the body, then, then, then we're missing something. Is it? That's that's my understanding, and so for me, ritual is is so central and key to 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 these spaces and to this healing process. Yeah, and just to answer your question, Ian, I think Judaism not only should, so we have once a week where we have a break, you know, twenty four hours from sundown on in Friday Friday evening till there's three stars in the sky Saturday evening. Every week we have that pause and that ritual. And then there's so many different holidays. There's so many different mm. markings throughout the year that make us pause, make us take a break, make us come together in community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even we just had Hanukkah and like in the darkest times of the year, right during the winter solstice, it asked us to come together every night for eight nights to be together in community around, around candles, around fire. And, and so there's so many ways that these in times throughout the year that we're invited to really slow down. You bring this up actually with that. When I've looked at a calendar that actually includes, you know, a lot of the Jewish holidays and gatherings, it's like actually overwhelming. It feels, it's like, Oh, and then we have, and then there's, per, there's Purim and then there's, Yom Kippur, and, then there's and, uh, and it's actually really fascinating from the mindset of kind of like, Oh, this is exhausting. Right, like, oh, now you're just going to another festival. Um, but, but what I recognize, I think, is that it, it is it reflects a very different understanding about like what is worth doing, right? What is worth doing with one's time, with family, with um, with relationship. And for me, it seems to reflect it. It uh, prioritizes the relationship uh, versus prioritizing the doing, right? As a sort of like the doing is what's important, and these are just kind of breaks from the doing. Is, is the other mindset, right? And I, I would actually make the case, even from my own experience now, that um, the modern culture, the modern sort of demythologized, uh, sort of obsessive with doing culture, says that if you keep doing, you'll arrive at the Holy Land someday, right? Like if that's that's the kind of undercurrent promise, just keep on doing, you know, and you'll get there someday. And of course, anybody who's tried that, you know, realizes, I mean, like me, uh, it just keeps going. Uh-huh. It just like it's like these train tracks that recede in the distance, and they never meet. They look like they meet, right? They look oh, they're almost there. Just keep going, but they never meet. And the uh, willingness to stop 
in a meaningful way and to organize and to, you know, gather and to not do, to, to feed that which is feeding you, which I see, in, you know, in these rituals that do that, there's a different kind of coming homeness, you know, that, that arises. And it's like water. It's like drinking water right after being parched in the desert for so long. And, uh, and so I really appreciate that, that sort of, there's a really deep intelligence, you know, to organizing a culture around, you know, these, these ways of gathering, these ways of feeding. Yeah. And, you know, it's just you talking about relating. I think that's really a key aspect of a lot of times these concepts of, you know, prayer or um, celebration is easier with community. Or, mm. for example, there's so many fast days in, in the Jewish calendar in the year. And I've tried fasting without that. And it's hard. It's hard to, like, be motivated to fast, you know, when you don't have a container, when you don't have a community to support you in it. So, there's, there's, yeah, there's a deeper intelligence in, in just the way that it's, it's, it's put together. And the more I observe it, the more I, I practice it, and also in a way that's separate from what I grew up with that, that didn't feel fully resonant because of, you know, so many different layers. The more I actually observe the Jewish calendar and all the marks, the fast days, and it just feels good in my body. And so that's, that's my information. And... Yeah, all these rituals help sanctify the, the passing of time. And that's, you know, the passing through a, through a year and all the seasons. And it's also the passing through one's lifeline, one, one's lifetime. And, and these are there's small, really small, small, everyday like transitions that happen that there's a loss if, you, if, if we don't recognize them, if we don't take a moment to, to, to celebrate, to commemorate them or, or to mourn them, you know, and so part of those rituals and 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 whether it is like throughout the year or it is like through a person's lifetime in like different age stages it's there to to so whatever whatever feelings or emotions or or changes happen with those transitions there's a moment to to mark that so it doesn't feel lost and just for you mentioning just different rituals outside of even the holidays you know i think a really powerful ritual in in judaism is is the practice of Shiva. So after a funeral, so after someone dies for seven days, the whole family just sits and mourns and all their community comes and visits them. And Ophir and I got to witness a really traditional Shiva for a grandpa. And, you know, in the Moroccans, they take it really, at least in our family, in our lineage, they take it really seriously. And so all my grandpa's siblings, they're still alive and all of his children, including my mom and our grandma, they couldn't leave the house for a week. They, and wow. most of the times they were just on the floor sitting. They were sleeping on a mattress. They were sitting on that mattress. And we, people came and hundreds of people would come and visit them and tell stories of my grandpa. And all the grandchildren, including Ophir and I, we would be serving them tea and dates and walnuts. And, and it was like so, so rich to be able to, to really take that time to grieve and the funeral itself had, you know, more than any funeral I've ever seen, just so much wailing. And there was, it was just encouraged to wail. Like it's, 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 it's part of the expectation that, that you wail and that you really help move that, that energy. And at first for me, like I got there and I was like, oh my God, this is a lot, you know, this is so much. You just see my mom and our sisters and my grandma just like sobbing. And even my uncles, my uncles were wailing. You know, and just seeing men like wailing like that was for me just seeing my uncles wailing gave me so much more permission. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that is another thing that I, I bring into the men's work that I do is 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 seeing that in my own culture of of that ability to access those layers of grief and wanting to to be able to tap that into into that with other people as well. Mm. People that might not have had access to that growing up. Mm. Ophira, did you want to add to that? You're good. Um yeah, I just I just want to add that like the 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 rituals around life and death, I think, as you know, as Dora mentioned, that there there is something about like the the day-to-day rituals that also whether it is like some of those facets that help us prepare for, for, for death, you know, or help us, you know, really understand the, the gift that is life. And, and, you know, as Dora was mentioning with the, like the, the siblings and the children, they're not a, like their only job. They're not like, they're not, they're expecting not to get up from that mat because their only job is to, is to grieve what was lost, mm-hmm. you know, it's to grieve death so they can come in closer connection to life. So I think that's a lot of what the rituals are about. I'm curious about the mythologies also, you know, within the, within the culture, within the, the stories and that, you know, is there a particular stories that does come to you, you know, that maybe you, you share at the men's times. Yeah. I see you nodding your head. So, I mean, I'm curious again, yeah. How, how has those, how have those stories informed, you know, masculinity and, or um, kind of like understanding differently, like this moment. Yeah, one story that I mean, there's so many stories, but one story that comes to mind um, that many may be familiar with is about Joseph and the Technicolor Dream, and and I feel like it's such a good metaphor. You know, Joseph was like the most eccentric son, and he and he was his you know father's favorite, and you know he had like wild dreams and you know just a like a Technicolored clothing, and his brothers, you know, they they. They ostracize him, you know. Like they, 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 they find a, they found a way to get rid of him. And you know, the story comes to a point where, like, Joseph actually like supports them. You know, they, they come, they're struggling, and Joseph, in his new position in 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 Egypt, you know, he 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 helps them out. And and I think that there's a lot of wisdom in what's even unfolding. And you know, the 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 men's movement is like there's a the there's a lot of like trauma that's held by like the conditional ways of masculinity and, and, mm. and those who have stepped out of it, who have like embraced like a, a, ma- a more feminine queer path that actually have a lot to, to, to support and inform this movement. And so, yeah, I just love that metaphor and that story. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, just to add to that story also that point when, Joseph got to Egypt and then, you know, it took him a while. He was in prison. He was, and then eventually he was interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams. And so he was starting to get power and gain ranks and then being really held in high esteem. And so that helped him gain the power so that when his brothers did come back, you know, he was able to be more in his body. He was able to be more in his power so that he could like, you know, he, he doesn't, he didn't need to like, now that they're he's in power, he could have killed them or he could have done all these other like things to get revenge. But instead he chose not to do it because he was in his power. And so he didn't need to go to those levels. And so I think part of the men's work that, that we do and like is based off these is myths and stories is like to get us into in the place that we can hold compassion, we can hold love, even for all that hurt, like for anyone in our like their fathers or other men in our life that might have hurt us, how do we how do we come into a position of like comfort within ourselves you know and and Mm. so that like 
when we other people come to us, we can, you know, we don't have to shun them or tr- be triggered by them or, you know, like mm-hmm. be able to project our hurtness onto them. But instead mm-hmm. we can, we can welcome them and, and hold space for them to, to do their own healing. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's also another story that we use a lot in our, in our retreats and it is the story of Nachshon. And Nachshon was when the Jews were leaving Egypt um, in the Exodus, after they were fleeing Egypt, and they had to cross the Red Sea, and everyone was scared to to do so. And some people were like, "Maybe we should just go back." You know, what what is Moses done? We're going to be drowning. And Nachshon ended up going into the into the sea and until until his head, and then that's like when also the the sea split as well. And so it took like that person that like they're really just trusted and 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 had the courage to take a risk you know and and lead and in the time it was so much easier to like let's just go back even though we're enslaved even though at least that we, we know that we're secure in that so mm-hmm. you know we just had Nachshon as like a model of like stepping into the unknown in the mystery even though it can be hard at first and can be you know but it could also shift us into a new place into a new paradigm mm. and so mm. yeah we bring that story in a lot as well i love that i mean i i really see the link between you were sharing about seeing your uncles i believe you know being able to to be wailing at the funeral and, and to model that capacity you know to to be undefended in that sense to allow the their grief to move through them and to see nashon i think you said you know the willingness to kind of step forward into the uncertainty maybe with no guarantee, you know, that this leads anywhere good, but to immerse themselves in in the way forward as a model for the others to come. And so I see that as well in in, uh, in men's work that often works really importantly, where there are men that have to, you know, basically, yeah, model vulnerability or model authenticity to give permission to the other men to, you know, actually see that it's, you know, quote, safe to do so, you know, because I do feel, you know, for me and for a lot of men that I experience, I really feel like so much of the, the the holding back it seems to come from fear, right? Fear of, well, what do they think of me? Fear of, it's safe to do so. Will I be held? You know, these are the undercurrent questions I think that maybe maybe a lot of men don't know is behind the the facade, you know, of keeping it all together and like all these things. And so I'm curious, yeah, what what are the other ways you've experienced? You know, these kinds of openings for men, and in the particularly in the ways that you invite them into uh, in the men's work. Yeah, it's a great question. So, well, w- one thing I, I can think about is that Dora and I have had a lot of practice because being twins with each other, of, mm. of, 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 of having someone to be vulnerable with, to hold accountable, you know, just all these different things that, that, that we're trying to share. We just had a lot of practice and at times it was really painful growing up. And, and so I think just the, that having that, that space and that someone to, to just be really real with all the time I think definitely informs the way we show up. And and for us, it's really important that if we're holding a space that we're not showing up as uh, um, facilitators, but actually as as a participants, you know, like we're all here working our shit together. And when we've tried to bring in like guest facilitators and, and, and we felt that they're like more teaching and being kind of removed from the experience, then, then we really had to say like, this is actually not our style. This is not what this is about. This is about all of us working together, realizing that like, like by, by modeling 
the like our shit modeling the things that we don't have it right that actually is where all the permission is 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 being given to the rest of the participants and so yeah it just feels really important in and how we orient to the space yeah and i think also doing the work has really you know at first when facilitating ofri and i would i feel like had a lot more friction and we're butting heads more and i think throughout through this journey we're able to also work on our own projections onto one another and being able to like be even more vulnerable and more honest and more authentic with one another, you know? And, and so all these things that we projected to the other are not, not as relevant anymore because we actually, we've shared it with one another. And so there's nothing to hide. And so we don't have to, you know, before we would, we might pick at one another because, mm. you know, if we would say something that, that here, I was like, Oh, I don't like, I don't like that. Or, and it was also my own shit, my own shadow, you know? And so like the more I worked, I did my own work, the more that Ophir and I could be in harmony together and, and really be able to utilize and sanctify this, this journey. Like we've both chose to be in this world together and to be twins. And that's a big thing. And there's a lot of power in there. If we like, once we find that, that, that balance. Mm. And I want to name that, although we Dora mentioned the you know the the witnessing of our uncles wailing in, in the in the in the funeral, and that was a beautiful ex- like modeling. That was a very unique example. Like m- like most of the the time, there was no like that emotional vulnerability was not mm-hmm. displayed. I mean, our, especially with, like our father. I I asked recently my mom, "Have you seen Dad cry?" And she's like, "Maybe once in the whole like." almost 40 years of being together. And, and so um, that's also part of the reason why we chose to hold that space is, is, for, is, is so we can actually feel that permission and uh, of that emotional vulnerability. Just on the topic of grief, you know, on one retreat, we had a grief ritual that was held by our friend Will Rogers. And it was just so powerful just to have 20 male-identifying, you know, folks just in a grief ritual together and really like being able to, to wail and witness each other wailing. And, and I think that was really powerful for everyone involved. So, you know, I think just that, just being in the, in a container of in, in like a funeral, you know, like, like our grandpa's death allowed that for our uncles, you know, but a lot of most, most cultural, like rituals don't include that wailing, you know, that's pretty, you know, funerals are one thing, but even a lot of funerals, you know, in many traditions have become more contained. Well, I'm struck by, again, this, this question of, of like culture and container. You know, there seems to be this relationship there around, you know, in some ways that finding personal things to be, I don't know, grief, grief soaked about or to, to, to tap into those, like sometimes it can be very fugitive, I find. Right. Because, you know, if you're just day to day kind of doing your thing and, you know, a circumstance happens like, yeah, people without a cultural frame or cultural rhythm, you know, they, they're sort of left to, I mean, I don't like this word around emotions, but like process emotions on their own. You know what I mean? Whereas when there's a, a cultural rhythm with very specific containers, it's like there's a kind of yeah, a kind of momentum or a kind of like invitation, right, for these things to get taken care of at like regular intervals. You know what I mean? And it's sort of, there's a sort of intelligence in that, which I feel like I'm, I'm really starting to appreciate. You know, there's a, there's a time when, yeah, all of the grief stored up from, you know, whatever is like, this is where you bring it, you know? And like, everybody knows that in the, in the cultural frame or the tribe, you know? So, 
again, I'm really struck by the, just the deep, deep intelligence, which like continues to reveal itself every time, you know, there, there's an, I have an encounter with, again, like a, a deep cultural lineage. Yeah. And I think that's, what's also special about Judaism. And I've gotten that feedback from many friends. They're like, just being witnessing that, witnessing that in, in their Jewish friends is like, it's one of the most present examples of an intact culture we have, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so to have that, you know, and of course it shifted and shit and changed because of different influences that we've talked about, but there's still some things that really allow it to be intact. And that for me, I just feel such an, a privilege to be able to, to, to have this tradition and this lineage and, and, and that's why like, it, it feels like my duty and blessing to be able to share that with others as well. Mm-hmm. Ophir, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I would just add that, yeah, those like, those really small everyday traditions, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to, to think about how can, like, what are the openings there? Like what, for, for, for those emotions that may not have been modeled to me, but, but there's an opportunity like within those traditions. And so part of it is just like, how do we reorient to those traditions, to those um, daily practices that, that does give more space for, for that, the energy that like you, you mentioned that needs to move through. And that I think Francis Weller, maybe in your podcast or or somewhere was saying that it's like, Mm. it's like spiritual hygiene. It's just like, Mm. you really need to, you need, you need that, that those expressions of grief or anger to, to, to renew the, the soul, to the spirit, to, 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 to clear it, clear any, any stagnation. And so that's part of Dora and I's work is figuring out how, how one, we reorient it so, so it can allow for that and how then we can gift it to others. Mm. Well, I feel we're, we're headed to the close soonish. Um, and uh, I'd be amiss to not ask the one of you who's a poet, or the one who's recently published to to bring forth something to share with us to close it out. But I wanted to give you a warning before we got there, uh, maybe to start thinking about what, you know, a, a poem that could be brought. Um, and before we get there, uh, my I guess I'm left too with a uh, an ask or a, what invitation you might make to the listener as well, who may, may have, you know, Judaism in their lineage um, or not. But like, what are ways in which they can begin to you know, approach and to reconnect with their own ancestral intelligence? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it, you know, it's so, yeah, everyone has such a different journey. So it's, yeah, I would sit, like, I would probably like share different advice with different, different individuals. But I think, you know, the first one is just like curiosity of like where it actually exists in, in my lineage, like things that I'm seeking outside of myself in general, like where, where, where can I find them within? Where can I find them within, within my own family? And, and, and yeah, just that curiosity, I would, I would say, is, and that invitation to, to, to explore that. Yeah, and I would also add that, you know, just in my own path and just seeing others as well, a lot of times we, because of, of traumatic experiences or experience that ha- didn't resonate in our childhood, in our, or, yeah, in growing up with with our traditions or ethnicity or religion or just our fam our culture families culture and you know, then we we want to go away from it. And so we remove ourselves from it. And so, you know, just to anyone listening is really like Ophir was saying, is 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 how do we you know, why do we we are who we are and we came into this world in a certain way. So 
you know, for me personally, is like the more curiosity I have around my own background, around whether it's Judaism or my Moroccan heritage, or even, you know, my, our, you know, our dad is, is my, our grandpa is part German and our grandma comes from the Lithuanian background. So all parts of my ancestry, just getting curious around it and getting curious around the people, the ancestors of the land that I live on. So right now I'm in, in, you know, in, in Chimicum and, and Skalom territory in the Salish Sea. So like just getting curious, how to like get both curious around those ancestors, the ancestors of the land that I'm on right now, because I'm not in Israel or Germany or Morocco or, you know, Lithuania, but still being curious around those because those inform who I am today and being curious around the people whose land I'm on, because that's also going to inform, because that's going to inform about how I what move around the land and mm-hmm. and some some traditions and some rituals that are really relevant to the seasons of the land that I'm on right now. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, I, I had a previous guest, um, her name's Opokonix. She's from the Heisla Nation, uh, just uh, uh, sort of northern from Vancouver, northern Vancouver. And we did speak about this topic a bit too, around how in in right relationship with indigenous peoples, and in this case, you know, speaking more of North America, that, you know, when there's an encounter between, you know, one who's not from here and one that is, oftentimes I think they do a bit of triangulation of like, how much does this person know about their own ancestry? You know, that like the indigenous person is kind of like, can I, how far can I trust this person? Because um, are they going to be another one who's, you know, doesn't actually have their own sense of their own, where they're from, of their own lineage at all, and is much more prone to appropriate, right? Or to fetishize or to do all these things because they haven't done that work. I feel like that's that's something that is just seems to be true within that encounter, which is totally understandable, you know, that they have to assess basically like, okay, you know, this person says they're an ally, but how much of the work have they done actually to to come with with the sense of, again, yeah, who they are and what they're showing up with. And so I feel like you said, like that feels like the other piece of one's own lineage reclamation is that they, they do do that to come to the places where we are, if we're talking again about North America, with that with that effort, you know, kind of, and that's not an arrival, certainly I myself as well. I'm, I feel still, still feel like such a beginner, you know, in this stuff. But I do feel like it, it, it begins to work on that right relationship by that willingness and, and creates a, just a possibility of trust, more trust than would be there, you know, if that work hadn't been done. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm almost time for Ophir to grace us with something. Is you, you got it now? Yeah. I was like debating between two that each tend a different thread of some of the conversations we've, we've been mm-hmm. having. Um, Could you offer both? Is that, or is that too much to ask? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, we'll take a breath, breath in between, and then maybe just you just roll. Great. Awesome. So the first one is um, called on masculinity, and so uh, yeah. This morning I woke up to a pool of tears. To be in this male body, in this society, in this conditioning, the greatest liberation I have yet found is in welcoming the waters, letting them flow, not resisting the strong current of heartbreak, of pain, of regret, of loss, of love. The heart is a tender well and does not want to run dry. The heart is a tender well and does not want to run dry. 
It wants to be nourished by the same waters it feels in source and womb. To strip this of my heart is yet the greatest sin I can commit as a man and to which all other sins might stem from. Thank you, Spirit, for regifting me tears. And this one is a little bit more about reconnecting to the to the to the the wild of our traditions and to the un, untamed, to the not suppressed. Mom, I sense the hesitation as I walk through the door, hair unkempt, spilling over the side of my ears like overgrown bushes you pruned just a week ago. Nails razor sharp, still feasting on yesterday's soil. Clothes torn from occupations you dreamed not for me. Shoes carrying the stains of stories you fear to hear. Mom, you can mow the lawns, but the weeds do not surrender. Remember, I come from the wilderness of your womb. I carry this wild not in spite of you, but in honor of you. In my bones of the wild grace of the traditions you handed down to me. The magic of our ancestors and all they faced through their oppression. I walked the edges because that's what they had to do. And in your current suburban bubble, you've forgotten that in the essence, you too are an unapologetic expression of where you come from and where you need to go. Mm. <laughs> wow. Thank you, brother. Mm-hmm. Dora, you want to add anything before we close out? <laughs> um, I think I think sometimes just poetry and those subtle subtle messages and capture mm-hmm. capture everything. And um, just grateful to be here today. Grateful to be in this conversation. And mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, likewise. Thank you both for making the time today and come together in this way and uh, and wonder what, what happened and where we might go. Thank you, Ian. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. And once again, please consider becoming a patron supporter of this podcast. Head to themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more.